It's great to have you here. Uh, my name is Colin McClay. Um, I used to work at the Berkman Center. I still have an appointment there, I'm happy to say. Um, but I was brought back for this very special occasion um, to celebrate my dear friend Judith Donath. And I'm so happy that you guys, this great crowd and these great mic holders have come out tonight um, uh, to hear about this remarkable book, which was, uh, as you may or may not know, a long time coming. Um, but I'm happy to report it is worth the wait. Um, I have uh, read a series of previous versions, not this latest one, but it is beautiful. You can see it in the back. Hold up the book. Um, you want to get your hands on this, trust me. has um, great visuals and uh, unbelievable ideas and text and prose. So um, please consider buying a book. Uh, consider also tweeting about it. Um, here you have the social machine uh, hashtag um, coming to a, a social media app uh, near you. Um, clearly that would be apropos given the topic of the conversation tonight. Um, one word just to let you know that we are being recorded. We're not being webcast live, but we're being recorded. So if you have an issue with that, probably you should go to the back row. Is that right? Um, uh, and hide. Um, but we definitely respect anonymity here. Um, and that's part of the design process is that you can get out of the way of the camera uh, and, uh, and hide yourself. Um, but not from the room, of course. Um, so let's see. I think uh, that's the, the sort of, uh, actually, one other bit just on the roadmap tonight. So I'm going to get out of the way very shortly, and we're going to let Judith take it away for a half an hour or so, and then we will um, first go to David Weinberger, who's, uh, who's uh, volunteered to kind of launch us into conversation, and then really just go around the room. There are a few familiar faces in the crowd, which I'm um, very inclined to cold call since I'm in this unique position of having such uh, vaunted uh, scholars and practitioners in the room. Um, so be forewarned, um, and better yet, be prepared with your thoughts and questions for Judith, because uh, clearly after she's done so much work on this over the years, it's just a great opportunity to get it out uh, into the light of day with such an interesting audience. Um, so th that's kind of what I needed to say. Um, what I want to say um, is I'm not going to read Judith's bio. You guys, if you can't figure out what, uh, who she is, then you shouldn't be in the room in all likelihood. Um, I'm just going to say a few things that I've come to know and appreciate about her. Um, of course, you will know that she was doing um, social media really before there was a social media, um, certainly before most of us were involved in it. She was thinking about design long before design was cool, interaction, visualization, all the things that we are still trying to solve now, she was thinking about uh, 15 years ago or more. Um, so I think this is really a remarkable moment where, although the book, as I joked, is long in coming, it is uh, every bit as current um, as it would have been five years ago, and even more so indeed. Um, and I think what you'll see in the book and you'll hear tonight is um, sort of you'll get a sense of her tremendous interdisciplinary scholarship, um, her capacity to blend, as the book does, um, ideas and theory with design and practice, and to be able to make that a, um, a seamless dialogue, which is actually uh, both thought-provoking and actionable, which I think is um, rather novel for a text like this. Uh, and for many of us who are teachers or learners or makers um, or uh, users of social media. And I think that uh, what we'll talk about a little bit tonight and hopefully in the questions and answers as well, and, and as we repair afterwards uh, to the pub, which is just right around the corner uh, for uh, celebratory drinks, um, is you'll see how current these issues are and um, kind of Judith's vision of what can be done with design to solve so many of these vexing challenges that we face in using technology in ways that enhance our social interactions. Um, 
So that's a bit on the substance. And then I just want to say one thing about one or two things about her, which is I've had the great privilege, along with David and a handful of other people, to work with Judith um, over the last four or five years in a book writing group. Um, and it's just been a remarkable experience there in um, getting an appreciation not just of her ideas, which I've just um, uh, uh, waxed eloquent or maybe not so eloquent on, um, but also what kind of a colleague she is. And she's just been tremendously insightful and generous and among the most nimble interdisciplinary thinkers that I've come across, um, really constructive uh, to her colleagues, uh, endlessly generous. And I think you, we felt it in our group, and you can also see it um, by uh, looking at the acknowledgments in the book and uh, all, the, all the students' work that she points to. And her students have gone on to just do remarkable things in a wide variety of contexts from uh, business to scholarship to art. Um, so she really is special, and I'm so glad that you are all here uh, with me to celebrate her. And on that note, I'm going to get out of the way and say, take it away, Judith. Thank you. <laughs> so now everyone's expectations have been set really, really high. Thank you, Colin. That was very sweet. But maybe lower expectations here. Um, anyway, so as Colin was saying, it's been a long time coming. Um, the theme of the book, for those of you, many of you actually don't know me, is that the theme of the book is about the importance of online social interaction and the importance of designing for it. Um, there's, at this point, we do almost everything online. People socialize online, they meet the people they're going to marry online, they're in school online, etc. But our interfaces <coughs> remain fairly primitive. Um, they may look fairly sophisticated to us, but I think there's a level of design and interaction and liveliness that we're still very, very far from. There's a great... Um, one of my favorite quotes is by... I don't know the whole quote, but in, Mark Twain was... Um, criticizing people who didn't believe in evolution in the 19th century. And one of the examples he gave was from the perspective of an oyster, who millions of years of evolution have gone by and it's produced an oyster. And the oyster is sitting around thinking, wow, all of evolution was meant for me. What possibly more could we have from here? And clearly to us, the oyster is a fairly primitive creature. We're a little bit at that stage with social media. There's a lot of things, you know, you know, in the last 20 years, we've seen the rise of social network sites. We have, you know, millions and millions of people are online. But there's so much we don't see. We see very little of other people. There's tremendous numbers of patterns that we don't see. And the problem with this is not just that it's not a very sensory space, but what it means is that a lot of the problems that we see in the online world, such as people behaving very poorly, things being able to, very difficult to tell the veracity of information, et cetera, are because of this lack of our ability to see these interactions. So a lot of what I'll be talking about tonight are some of the directions I've been thinking about for how we can design for this, where we see some of these problems, et cetera. So um, this is just to show a lot of the things we like about the physical world are seeing other people. For instance, you're here tonight because there's still something intriguing about being in a group of people around other people, of seeing them, of seeing how they look, of seeing where they're interested in, of feeling the energy in a room that is still very hard to perceive when you are looking at a screen. And yet that screen is the interface to millions of people. When you think about something like this computer, it's actually connecting you to tremendous crowds. But while you may see some of their words, you may see some discussions, 
you don't see a lot of the, the patterns there. You don't see the level of activity. And I'm going to start by talking a bit about those sensory issues. Um, this is one of the first things that I dealt with when I was, you know, Colin mentioned that I was doing this for 15 years. This is actually from a piece from, that's about 25 years ago. Um, I was spending a summer in Japan, and it was very exciting. But on the other hand, all my friends were back here in Boston. And they were at the media lab, so they were all on computers. And I could see, I would run this command called who. And what it would do is it would let me see who was online. And I could see their activity. I could see who was, you know, who was active, who was there, who wasn't there. And I was in Japan, so when I got up, you know, everyone else was going to bed. I'd sort of see the rise and fall of, of people um, as the day went on. And I thought, I wish I could see this in a form that would be much more like a window, something I could look out and that, that it is about this ebb and flow of movement. How can I make that happen? And so when I came back from Japan, I started trying to think about how I would design that. And now the first problem you get with something like this is, well, where do you put all the people? You know, here you've arranged yourself in a space. But if you have just a list of names, it looks like you know, it looks like a memorial or something. You know, how do you move them around? And it's, it's actually it turned out to be a fairly hard problem, which then took me, you know, not the month, I thought, sort of like writing a book. It took a couple of years to do it. And, but, you know, in the early 1990s, this was the solution that I came up with was a piece where I used the mailing list. Everyone in our lab was on these different mailing lists, and they would say, you know, if you're interested in holography or baseball or whatever, you know, steganography, cryptography, you'd sign up for a mailing list. You'd be in discussions with that, and I could use that to, as anchors to pull the names of all the people who had logons in the system. And you could play around with different arrangements. But what was nice about it was that I could then filter it. This is looking at one arrangement of that at 4 in the morning. And you would see only the people who are present and the ones who are active would be bright. Um, and you'd see like there's only three or four people around. And then at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, it became much brighter. And so it was a fairly, you know, a relatively simple solution. But it then, it really did have that, start to have that feeling of being at a window where you could look out, you could see people show up. Because they were arranged by their interests, you would see patterns. You know, sometimes in the middle of the night when one group had a big demo, you would see a lot of people still there at 3 in the morning where other places were still. Now, it's 25 years later, and uh. this is what, you know, what we see is it's not that different. And what's a little bit amazing about it is there's a tremendous amount of really, really interesting activity that is happening online. These are very active spaces, but you still see this is, you know, here's, you know, a list of how many times it's been tweeted, 50. These are, you know, a set of tweets. It, there's, you see something scrolling up and down, but your sense of where the activity is, who the different people are, what has their pattern of interaction been, is still very, very hard to see. If I go on Facebook, which is, you know, and, and similar interfaces that are sort of the, our culmination of social life, this is what I see of all the people I know there. You know, it's, it's still that kind of vertical list. And so um, I think there's a tremendous amount that we can do to start seeing a lot more um, of the patterns. Now, here's an interesting piece. So here's this list. This is what you get from Facebook. You get a very, very long list of names. Now, lots of people have used a little app called, um, one of, there's a number of them. This one is, is called um, Social Nets. 
and it makes these different arrangements of all your friends for you. And people like it. You know, it's a social network map. It does interesting things. It shows you di different groupings in a clever way. Um, and, it, you know, you get to see... And one of the things you can do is you can click on a name and see who they're connected to. So it's kind of nice. This is, this is just if you look at um, Google Images for the output of this program. So lots of people do it, but it isn't yet integrated into the interfaces. So if you start to think about some of the problems that people complain about with, for instance, privacy on something like Facebook, um, you could see how just taking that next step and saying, here's a map. Now we have a map of our own social landscape. And if I could just, instead of trying to struggle with this list, we, if you want to, for instance, send a message to a group of people and say, this set of people probably shouldn't be reading this, right now that's almost impossible. But you could see that if you thought about maps like this as an interface, as opposed to just a picture that you look at and you, you like, and then you move on to something else, you would start being able to navigate that space in a much more um, interesting way. Um, you would also be able to start using it. You could think of ways you might use it as a filter. Who have I not spoken to? Who have I heard from recently, et cetera? So uh, one of the big issues here is the question of legibility. How do we make sense of a world of information? And that's what interfaces at the heart really are about. So a, lot of the, a, a big chunk of this book, I talk about things like metaphor, design, up and down. How do we start making sense of the world of information? Because information is inherently non-spatial. It's something that is very, very hard for us to comprehend. A lot of the goal with making interfaces that are much more vivid is to be able to see the patterns within it. So this is one project. This is um, taken from a talk page on Wikipedia. I don't know, how many of you have never looked at the, the talk pages that go behind Wikipedia entries? So some of you haven't. But one of the things that's great about Wikipedia is that you see the entire history of what's happened on a page. And so these pages are themselves, have a huge social history to them. The, and, you know, for instance, they have edit wars. There's things that are highly controversial. That information is embedded in that history. And it's a really important part of understanding what is the meaning of that knowledge, is, is the sort of social process that made it. But this is, this is actually part of the history of the entry under chocolate, which it turns out is surprisingly controversial. And so... Um, one of the a student who used to work with me, Fernando Villegas, working with Martin Wattenberg, did this visualization of the edits on chocolate. Um, and what's interesting here, and so this is a couple of lessons about legibility, is you could see when you look at that part where it's this little zigzag that looks like a nice blank, Navajo blanket, um, is actually a series of places where one entry was put in and reverted and put in and reverted <laughs> between people who had some issues. I, I don't actually remember what aspect of chocolate was something about certain flavorings that go into it, um, but it was highly controversial. So there's a couple of lessons here. One, once you start visualizing things like that, you can be able to see very quickly, for instance, where in an article has a controversy been? What are the pieces that people accept? What are the pieces that are controversial? But another piece, and this is where some of the interface issues become particularly interesting, is they did another version that looks like this over the same material. And the difference here between these two, this one looks very smooth. It doesn't look like you're seeing much controversy at all. But what you're seeing the difference is, is in this version, they 
took a sample and show you in this visualization every single time there's an edit. So you see things put in, you see them taken out. So here you're seeing the history of the social experience of writing it. In this one, they did, um, took the same material, but instead of sampling every time there was an edit, they sampled at a certain fixed amount of time. And what happened is all that controversy got smoothed out because Wikipedia is, um, tends to be corrected so quickly that the average user would never see it. So what you're seeing here is a visualization of the social experience of reading it because you, the chances are the, the piece that someone kept putting in and everyone else kept taking out was being reverted so quickly that most people would never have a chance to see it. So here you're seeing both how the visualization can give you a much more vivid understanding of what's going on, but that the choices and how you do it um, make a very big difference in what message it conveys, and often when, when well used, give you two stories that are both very interesting. Um, as David said to me earlier, he's also one of the people in the book club who's been looking at this, he said, there's so many threads in this book, how are you going to kind of pick some for a 25-minute talk? So um, legibility is one piece I wanted to talk about. The other, there's two others. One is the issue of going beyond being there, and then finally we'll be talking about identity. Um, beyond, the idea of going beyond being there comes from a paper that was very influential when I read it, Called, which is, that's the title of it. And the idea here is that when we're thinking about how we want to design things for social interaction, we don't necessarily want to think about just how can we recreate the experience of face-to-face -face interaction, but that because we have these computers, we can start thinking of how we design tools that do things that it is not possible for us to do face-to-face. -face. So, and this is um, one, one of the... Right now, I know that a lot of the talk that goes on around social media is around the problem of saying, you know, people are sitting here face-to-face -face with each other, and yet they're all looking at their cell phones. Um, you know, one way of looking at it is it's sort of it's a success of the technology that is giving you an opportunity to communicate in a way that, for whatever reason, is working for you better than the actual face-to-face -face experience. But um, one of the things that, you know, the idea of sort of re recreating being there is something like this, where you say, we have a conference. We are sitting around this room, and now we would like you to join us. You're at a distance, and we're going to recreate that experience exactly as well as we can. But it will always be somewhat second rate to actually being there. And you don't get any of the advantages that you could, you can start thinking of what are the things you can do when it's not like being face to face. You can, you can have um, ways of not seeing people's identity when that's useful. You can have ways of recording things. There's an enormous amount you can do when you move away from this notion of trying, oops, this one shouldn't be alive, trying to recreate reality. So this is a very different approach to thinking about how to do, for instance, a video conference. And it's based on some work that my students had done. Um, we'd done a series, one called Chat Circles, one called Talking Circles. This is from the Talking in Circles one, which is a, it's an interface for audio conferencing. So each person has a circle, and they're represented by their circle, and when they speak, the um, inside um, circle moves. So first of all, you've immediately solved one of the problems 
of, video, of audio conferencing, which is that you can immediately see who's speaking because the people who are quiet just have the, the thin outer ring, and the person who's speaking, um, the inside moves with their voice. So even if two people are speaking, you can tell who the ones that are speaking are. Now, in this example, um, we have two, um, two spaces here, and the idea with that was that you would have an audio range. So if you were, as you have in real life, so it's intuitive, if you have people who are circles that are near each other, they would be able to hear each other clearly, but simply by moving away, they become quieter and quieter. Um, they start getting fuzzy, and then once they start becoming black and white, you could, see, you could see that they were there, but you could no longer hear what they were saying, and they couldn't hear what you were saying. So what you would then have is an audio conference where you could see people, you could move around, you could have, move away to have a private conversation very simply. Um, you could start to play around with simple interfaces like this. Um, this was another version where once you had, when you had grayed out rooms, it said nothing is recorded here. So if you move your conversation to the black areas, everything that's in that space is recorded, and anything in a conversation in the gray area wasn't recorded. So it's a very, very simple interface, but rather than trying to recreate an enormous numbers of the details of making something seem like you are face-to-face -face with someone, you start pushing these questions of what are the things you want to be able to do with a conversation. Um, one of the other pieces to keep in mind, though, is that whatever you do with an interface, once you're designing something, is that that interface somehow shapes how people interact with each other. It can be a very little piece. Right now, I think one of the most powerful um, pieces of social shaping that you get online is the like button. It's a very simple piece, but if you think about how it changes the way, like what it does is, for instance, in something like Instagram or Facebook, it changes the social dynamics around a space so that you're encouraged to think, okay, if I'm going to put, especially on something like Instagram, I have a 13-year-old daughter who knows an entire world of taking photographs with the object in mind of saying, how many likes will I get? It's a particular structure of the interface. It can be very good. It says, okay, it helps people understand what they've said that's been popular, what isn't. But it's a very, very strong, it's a simple thing, but it's a very strong social shaping mechanism. This is um, a piece that was done by a former student of mine, Carrie, <coughs> once she became a professor with a student of hers. Um, she had been in a lot of meetings where she's very soft-spoken where every time she tried to speak, she was interrupted. And what this is, is it's actually the output of a table where you, where you, wherever you sit, you can see, you see little, um, the, the colored shapes are sh showing where you have been speaking. And by watching the patterns on the table, it starts to make a record of who is speaking when, but also who spoke over another person. So you see the records of the interruptions. So this is meant deliberately to be a way of shaping mores around things. Some things, you know, some interfaces can be can do it without intending to unintentionally, and others can be like this and do it deliberately. But it's a, one of the key elements in any kind of online design is the understanding that um, it shapes how we behave. You know, this is um, one of the biggest issues we deal with now. This is a picture of the state, one of the state penitentiaries that used um, Jeremy Bentham's panopticon model 
for watching people's behavior. And that's one of the biggest issues we're dealing with online now is the notion that almost everything, you know, when are things you say recorded? How long are they recorded for? When are they going to come up and um, be with you again somewhat unexpectedly? And so that's another key element in the design of interfaces is to make it very visceral to people. When is something a permanent statement? How are, the, how are you shaping your own identity um, through what you say? It's been a huge issue this week, and I know certainly at the Berkman Center this is part of the EU and Google's um, decision that you know, Google has to start to uh, let people redesign what is said about them on their front page. And it's a, um, that desire to be able to rewrite or to have control over our self-identity is something that you know, has a tremendously long history and is going to be, I think, an increasingly fraught issue in the world of design. One of the models that I've always used and I talk about a lot in the book for thinking about this is of um, portraiture. And um, Queen Elizabeth is a, is a great example. She kept complete control over all her portraits and there was um, under the penalty of death. If you created a portrait of her that she really didn't like, that may be the end of you. This is, a, this is and one of the um, pieces is this is a picture of her when she was 65. So she's very youthful, 65. And what's, uh, one of the things I found fascinating about that from, you know, in the perspective of now as we're thinking about how much we want to let people, who's control? The reason that thinking about a lot of the issues with data visualization as portraits is interesting is because when we think about visualization, you think here's the data and then the problem is how you depict it. But once you think about it as a portrait, you start thinking much more of the tension between this triangle of there's a subject who wants to be portrayed as beautifully as possible. There's an audience who really wants to know as much about them as they can. And there's an artist whose agenda may be all kinds of different things. Perhaps they owe their allegiance mainly to the patron who's the subject. And so they're playing something very flattering. Maybe they want to be known as you know, someone who just really shows things as they are. And maybe they have their own take on things they want to show. Um, the interesting thing about Elizabeth is that apparently two years ago, this portrait surfaced in <laughs> North Carolina, where apparently it had been sent, Raleigh, North Carolina. So you remember Walter Raleigh was a um, compatriot of hers. And apparently this portrait, which must have been done, was done in the same studio at the same time, makes her look much more like 65, got shipped off with him to <laughs> North Carolina sometime in the 15th century and has just resurfaced two years ago. Um, one more thing about Elizabeth while we're here and then we'll move on back to interfaces because this is one of my favorite book writing anecdotes is that I wanted to talk about this in the book in conjunction as I've done in a lot of talks with portraits with looking at contemporary portraits of Queen Elizabeth II to talk about how different the relationship between artist and monarch is from Elizabeth I's time to Elizabeth II. And the example I use is Lucian Freud's portrait of Queen Elizabeth. If anyone of you know Lucian Freud's work or this portrait, it's really not very flattering. She looks kind of old and gray and the, you know, the crown sits on her head somewhat awkwardly. And so while I was doing all my book permission writing and found out, okay, so this is at the palace and so I had to write to like the Lord Chamber of Buckingham Palace to get permission. And I get this very snotty note back 
with the world's, and remember it's Lucian Freud, who's actually Freud's grandson, with the best Freudian slip ever written, saying, I'm sorry, but you do not have permission to use this image. We just would like you to know that we very, very seldom give permission for reproduction of Freud's work, F-R-A-U-T. So anyway, so it's not in the book, but that was, that I, that was one of my favorite, certainly my, the most fun part of getting image permissions. So, um, but, um, so as we're thinking about doing portraits with data, um, a lot of the issue is how, like what, what makes something a portrait and what, you know, how do you make something be expressive when it doesn't have a face in it? And this is from a piece that was, I was commissioned to do, to, do a theory, to try and do a visualization from an existing conversation archive of a discussion about, I think, probably visualization. It was a somewhat re self-referential experience. And what I had done was to take a lot, and I think it's a little hard to see, it's a little bright in here, but for each of the people to sort of pick out words, so it's all the words of what they had said, but to pick out words that were particularly, and I'm wearing my contacts, I can't read this, um, particularly about them. So the one on this side says, lexical and interlinking. Um, there was someone else here who was talking a, a lot about um, the agonistic pluralism. But there were particular phrases that given people's particular styles, um, there was another person who was like really trying to keep the conversation going, and so the pieces I pulled out from them was asking, expand that for me, please. What's our common ground? Round table. So as a human reader, there were particular words that stood out in my mind as being particularly representative of those people, and so I could just make them bigger. That's at the heart of what makes a portrait, is this way of taking the things that represent that person more than other things and exaggerating them and making them salient. So what's different about that and the typical data portrait is that I was doing this as a human being, just picking the words that I liked without an a easily articulated, elatable, certainly not mechanizable rule. Um, but the general principle is the same as with any kind of caricature. This is probably one of the first algorithmic portraits made. This was done in the Architecture Machine Group, which is what preceded the Media Lab, by a woman named Susan Brennan, and it's called Caricature Generator. And what she did was, um, it's a caricature of Reagan. And so what you see on this side is the caricatured version. Um, the middle is a normal version, and on the right is a norm. And it's a nice method for understanding how caricature works, because what a caricature does is it says you have some kind of norm, and then you take your subject, and you look at the ways that they differ from the norm, and then you exaggerate those. And she did that algorithmically, and then you get something when it's well done that looks more like the subject themselves, because it's all the salient features. And so... When you, you can do the same thing with, for instance, words. This is um, a piece that some, my students did years ago. This is, I, I know, impossible to read, but um, this is looking at the portrait of a relationship. It says, this is taking, one of the things we were interested in here was that, you know, how many of you save lots, if not all, of your email? So, but, you know, one of the things that fascinated me about that is that like we like to keep this stuff, but there's not really a good reason for having it a lot of the time you think. You say, well, maybe I really need to look up, you know, 
when was that day that we changed lunch from 115 to 120? You know, it's just like what a lot of the mail is, but you still keep things like that. And our theory was that what people are keeping is the pattern, the existence of the relationship, much more than the specific pieces of mail. And what we wanted to do was a visualization of those relationships. And so we used a technique that is for text, that type of caricaturization. And so what this is is a histogram from month to month to month of you know, one relationship in, in mail. And this was a system where you could do it with anyone you'd ever emailed. Um, and this happens to be a lot of mail of mine with my now ex-husband. But, so we emailed quite a bit. But what you see there is each, the column height tells you how much you mailed. But what the words are is how, does, how did the words you used that month differ from the words you used over all of your relationship and then with people um, with the English language as a whole. So it gives you that set of things that were very particular to it. What was interesting in our experience of seeing people use this too was that you don't normally show your email to other people. But um, we did a lot of tests with this and the subjects often wanted to print, like take some of these and print them out. And what they said was it was like having a, a postcard or photograph of, an, of your online friendship. Because if you go to the beach with a friend, you can take a picture together. You can sit in a cafe, you can take pictures together. The entire world seems to take you know, dual, dual selfies now. But it's very hard to take a picture of your email. But because it was also single words, it gave you a flavor of the feeling of the interchanges, but it wasn't so detailed as to make you feel that you were showing something private. And so it was something you could take and put up, and it was a picture of your online interaction. This is a piece that uses the same um, underlying algorithm, but for taking portraits from Twitter, so that you could look at something like your Twitter feed. Here, for each person, you have on one side of the um, outline the things they've historically talked about, and the other side are the things they're currently talking about. And this is would be live, and you see, again, both you see the levels of activity, but you also see the words. And so you can imagine coming in and seeing this as a window of people you're interested in, in following. But So I want to end with um, a question here, which is going back to this issue around Google and you know, how much, where should we have control, this is a, a piece, that, again, that was done by a student of mine, um, Aaron Zinman, it's called Personas, and what it does is it makes, takes a, you type in your name, and it spits back a little portrait of you. We had this as part of a museum exhibit, actually the exhibit that, as you see, the, is part of the book cover. People love this. They couldn't, what it does is it goes through, it searches Google for any mention of your name, and then it characterizes it, and you sort of see it go through all these different things. It's thinking away, and you're seeing different topics come up, and then finally it spits out a set of topics that it says characterize you and the words that things characterize you. But it's an algorithmic portrait. For instance, it, to the extent that what is on Google is not characteristic of you, it is not going to be any better. To the extent that it is not good at, you know, it used state-of-the-art machine learning for understanding natural language, but to the extent that it doesn't understand a particular reference or the fact that you are being sarcastic about something, it will misunderstand you. If your name is John Smith, it will conflate you with every other John Smith that there is there and will give you a nice group portrait of you and all you know, your fellow John Smiths. And so 
it's just the, the thought that I want to end with here is how we can create, we can use these techniques to create very, very, very vivid worlds. They can have enormous impact on how we see other people, how we behave, but um, how other people behave. But there's, for every piece that is a solution, they all raise an enormous number of new questions about control, about privacy, about legitimacy, what is legibility, etc. So, Thank you, and I would just like to, this is one of my, the many, many people over the years who has been particularly helpful in writing this book, but I would like to just thank a couple of people, some of whom are here, um, for particularly um, my colleagues at the Media Lab, and thank you, Nicholas, um, for being, you know, an amazing environment in which I developed a lot of the work and the ideas in this book, and particularly the students of the Sociable Media Group. And um, one of the reasons the book took so long was that I've had a great home here in Berkman. And the longer I stayed in Berkman, the more and more questions I had about a lot of the underlying issues behind the technology and a lot of the problems that they raise. And so I think it made the book a much better, longer, <laughs> both longer in length and longer in process. And I also particularly would like to thank the um, people from Berkman who are in the Berkman book reading group, which who edited piece after piece after piece of it. And um, anyway, and thank you all for being here tonight. So. So um, with that, David, why don't, we, why don't we turn right to David? I'll give you this microphone. How's that? I'll bestow this upon you. You don't, you can, I, I'm going to, I'm going to, let's privilege the crowd. There's too many good people here, and I will, I have some questions too. Okay, so I have uh, between 15 and 20 questions. Oh, good. Um, <laughs> Thank you. So that's wonderful. And um, I, I, as I said, I was wondering how you were going to take this incredibly rich book. This book is just so full of, um, of examples, many of them uh, yours, your work, but not entirely that, but um, one of the things that was really sort of silently impressive about it was, and I've known you for a while, and I've you know, always uh, um, respected you and, and cherished our relationship, you've done a lot of stuff, and a lot of it is in, in the book, which is on sale in the back, and will be, and that stuff is in full color, I understand. So, um, for example, your 1998 um, Work on the social meaning of, of the sig SIGs or signatures on oh. Usenet. <laughs> it's just really great to read. The entire chapter on Usenet and ARPANET is just uh, by itself uh, fantastic. Really, really interesting. So I want to um, um, sort of um, channel Sherry Turkle for a minute. Okay. Okay. So this is very, as we know from your talk, this is a very you see so much uh, positive in the way in which we connect with one another over the net, and you know that I do too, which is why I'm channeling somebody else and mm -hmm. asking this. Um, so you said in passing at, in the beginning that the reason why we're in a, in a public space, we're not even a public, we're in a group space, and mm -hmm. we're still many of us looking at our phones, is that we're finding something social and worthwhile there. And I think that there is an argument to be made that, well, no, maybe it's because it's a pathological thing. And so I want to just ask you about that briefly, right? Because there's a lot of stuff that we do that it actually doesn't reflect something good. Maybe this is. Um, um, 
as you read your, your book, which is quite comprehensive, I mean, it's really, really nicely done, um, over and over and over, um, you get the sense that you see us in a world in which our representations of ourselves, our sociality itself is being conveyed in information. Mm -hmm. That information is fundamentally disconnected from us, is something you referred to tonight. Um, uh, and there are benefits to that, but there's also this amazing fluidity. And you point out some of the dangers, but you also um, point out many of the benefits of having this sort of incredibly fluid and independent um, representation of ourselves, or perhaps not a representation, ourselves itself. So here's the question, sorry, long way around. Well, first of all, I want to give you a, a chance to talk about um, the objection that this is actually a diminishment of our sociality because it's so stripped of context, et cetera, et cetera. And second of all, I'm wondering if um, in this new type of self, what seems like a new type of social self that this technology enables and which we need better interfaces for, better design for, whether you think that dissolution, that, that uh, incredible fluidity is having an effect on what, for the moment, I'm going to call our real self, a term I'm using, uh, I'll, get, you know, I'll deny it in a moment. Uh -huh. um, what, what sort of effects is this having, uh, if any, on how we are relating with one another outside of the social world? And is that positive, negative, or something else? Okay, so I guess I pick and choose which part of that question Absolutely. I answer. It's my party. Well, I think one, thing, one of the analogies I've used when people ask me, what is your book like, is um, to Jane Jacobs, The Life and Death of Great American Cities, because it's not necessarily that cities were bad or good. She saw that she loved cities, she loved the life in cities, but she wasn't very happy with how a lot of the, the ways they were being developed. And so she wrote the book to talk about the ways that you want to be designing things. What were some principles that would make them better? So while I see a lot of potential in mediated interaction, I don't think every form of it is, is necessarily very good or every use of it. And so a lot of the point of the book is my arguments about what are the things we want to be making better how we want, where, what are the ways that, for instance, we want to have more control over our data, how we might want to be able to see things that are much more vivid, how, you know, how it could be a more sensory world, you know, and things like that. So the question about how it's changing our, um, our experiences face-to-face, -face, I think um, one of the reasons that some of these issues are so important now is that you know, for instance, you said real world in quotes. And right now, there's still a big difference between how we deal with each other when we're face to face and how we deal with each other on the screen in the very separate spaces. But in 10 years or so, there's going to be far less separation. You know, the cell phone is the beginning of that where you're sitting in a public space and you're on your phone and you're talking to people. But as things like Google Glass become much more ubiquitous or, or other versions that are better designed than that, or things like facial recognition become very, very common and interfaces with them, a lot of these issues are going to move into our everyday physical space. And that's when I think we're going to see the much more enormous repercussions about how it affects our face-to-face -face life. And that's one of the reasons why I think it's so urgent to think about these design issues now, because 
I think for a lot of people, it's easy to say, well, that's all going on in the computer, it's all on Facebook, or it's my, it's my email. It's not really my life, it's a separate world. But I think that distinction is going to become increasingly blurred. And on the last note, I mean, that seems very kind of resonant of Dana's work, saying, mm -hmm. you know, for young people, of Dana Boyd's work, so for young people, there is no difference. It's, it's just life. It's not online or offline, right? I think in this, okay, you, you want to jump in? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No. Um, what do you feel or, or how, how do you differentiate um, the information that users put out about themselves versus information that others put out about them? Because I feel you're talking about portraiture. Mm -hmm. And if you have, you know, I think about my own Facebook page or my own Instagram. If I put something up and I think, oh, my God, someone's going to think this about me, I immediately take it down. Or it's like, well, that was a really dumb thing to say. And so you take it down. But if someone else records you saying that and then puts it out there and you lose control... Um, what are there are there legal issues of ownership? I mean, how how is it all being integrated in the greater portrait? Yeah, I mean, the I am not the expert on the legal issues, though you may be in a space with a lot of other people who have them. I can deal more with the design and, and ethical piece. Um, one of the things I didn't talk about tonight, but a lot of what I think is important and important about the portraits is that there's very little use of pseudonymity online today. That right now we, we see things divided into um, you're either completely anonymous or you use your real name. And there, the debates about that usually are around the lines that anonymity has, there's very little, there's, because there's no history and no reputation, that anonymous contributors to discussions tend to be very poorly behaved, it's really bad, we should all be using our real names, and if you're not doing anything you're ashamed of, why wouldn't you want to use your real name? And I think that re use of real names, and I'll, I'll get to your point in a second, the use of real names online is very different than it is in the real world, because, in the physical world, because your words are permanent and they're searchable. So it means that every aspect of your life gets conflated. It needn't be something that is wrong. For instance, what, um, I do all my shopping online. So, for instance, if I decide I want to buy... Um, underarm deodorant, I'll go to drugstore.com and I'll start reading reviews. And there are people who write really good reviews of things like <laughs> underarm deodorant, you know, foot sprays, whatever. Now, if I was to be a good contributor to these spaces, I too should write reviews back. That's like, you know, a nice thing to do. But, you know, I actually do not really want when people Google me, the first thing that comes up is like, well, I use this deodorant and then I realized I really smelled bad anyway. So, and so I want that to be what comes up when people look me up. But these are, you know, examples of spaces where that's where you could use a pseudonym. Lots of things... I think there's lots of way, ways you could be participating online that shouldn't necessarily be all under your real name. And, but what you need there is some kind of history, and that's where the importance of these portraits comes out, because if you have a pseudonym that has a history and a reputation, that gives you enough to have a functioning community, to have people who will take responsibility for their words, but it doesn't have to all be about who you are. It's different than the legal issues, and it doesn't help you should things come out under your real name. It's not hard and fast, you know. It's not terribly secure if the NSA wants to know, you know, are you the person who, you know, reviewed that restaurant like that? Um, it's, but for everyday use, I think, be, ha, 
being able to understand, have interfaces that help us take better control over maintaining different facets of identity is really important. So as a, in your uh, thank yous, I couldn't help but appreciate the um, kind words for both the Berkman Center and the Media Lab, each of which I adore. Um, and it feels appropriate since we've had uh, a word from the Berkman Center. How about maybe we turn to Nicholas and ask a question, statement, or other Well, actually, I maybe know you longest in the room. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's actually. It's a number quite a bit greater than 30 because it was before the Media Lab. It was the architecture machine. And it's absolutely true that you did social media. You did these things long before, long, long before. And now when we look at what's happening, it's, it's a little anemic. Why? Why? Yeah, why is it taking so long? Um, Not just to do what you were doing, but just it's it's still well, very I think, little traction. Yeah, I well, I think there's there are probably many reasons. I can think of two very quickly. One is, I think um, I think the web set design back tremendously because um, there were starting to be a lot of very very vivid interfaces coming out in the 1990s, and the web made it possible for lots and lots of people to be online. It had a tremendous impact because it made it very easy for everyone to be a writer and a publisher and participate. But part of the cost of the simplicity of the interface of the web, it's just very, it was, uh, has always been very hard to do anything that had graphics in it. It was very hard for a long time to have any kind of identity there until there, you know, it still takes a lot of work to have like real named identities there, or pseudonym, pseudonymous ones, it's just much easier to come in anonymously. But in particular, it just was always very hard to do any kind of design there. And when that became the de facto interface to the internet, I think that slowed down a lot of design. And I think that also um, the world of design has become extremely conservative because you have a lot of companies trying to chase becoming the next Facebook, but by trying to do the exact same thing. So you, you, just ha you have a lot of energy in Silicon Valley of people trying to make a big hit by chasing the last hit and not very much attention paid to trying to say, I'm going to do something new in a different direction. It will be small, but it will be very experimental. So I think those are two of the elements. There are probably many others, but that would be my... Oh, so it. it is open. For, we are open for business. So, right. um, I'm curious if you've done any work with um, the problems of um, user interface incorporating um, generational differences. For example, I mean, I don't just mean use of technology, but for example, my kids in their 20s have a totally different sense of geography than mm -hmm. I do. Um, I mean, an example was um, I'm. I think in terms of a map. When my daughter drives, she thinks in terms of the GPS. Mm -hmm. So she once called me from Florida with some friends that were driving to Ohio. I said, are you going to go through Tennessee? She said, we don't know. <laughs> um, we're playing guess the state. Um, we, we just guess on what the next state will be as we cross borders. They literally did not visualize the map of the U.S. Well, I haven't specifically done work that's, you know, about different generations, but it's true that that's a big part of something being legible, is that vocabularies change. 
and what makes sense to one group, you always have to be building on what makes sense to people given the experiences they have had. I would hope that most good design is somewhat legible to all and it makes things clearer, but no, I haven't specifically looked at how to make a generational translator for, for different pieces. But, um, and that's the point of a lot, and that's, well, I guess one other point to go to from there is that one of the things that's also very interesting about a lot of online social spaces is there's always a tension between what's open and what's not. And so a lot of the things that you see online when they're hard to understand, especially in the ways people use them, is that humans tend to make social groups. And one of the things they do when they make groups is they try to make some kind of border that makes it hard for outsiders to understand what's going on. And so that is, I mean, not, not with the GPS, that wasn't a decision to try and, you know, make it much harder for older people to, follow, to find their way to Ohio. But a lot of the use of technology and the use of particular vocabularies is, is t subconsciously designed to make it so that you have a group of insiders to whom things make a lot of sense and a group of puzzled outsiders. Uh, what do you think about the future of email versus uh, instant messaging? I is there a competition? Well, that, I mean, that's a, that is another somewhat of a generational example. So um, part of it is styles change in technologies, and sometimes they change because a new and better thing has come along that has a better utility than another. But sometimes they do change because of these much more fashion-like changes. So right now, I think a lot of what you see is that things like text messaging, et cetera, are used a lot by younger people. They're used, if you're on the phone a lot and you want to have an instant answer, you want something that's fairly ephemeral and conversational, you will use that. So it does have some utility, but a lot of the email versus text messaging is a lot like the difference between different restaurants where two may have so, sort of different food, but one isn't necessarily overwhelmingly better than the other, but one is like the hot restaurant of the day. So there's a social meaning to email right now that's, you know, email is for your parents that, you know, has nothing to do with its utility and it entirely with the social meaning it's acquired through these intergenerational issues. So you argue that um, we have to design online spaces that have di different characteristics, private or public, um, or sort of ephemeral conversations versus permanently accessible ones and so on. But how can designers guarantee these um, issues? Because, I mean, in the real world, I know when there's walls in the room around me, and so I know that whatever I say here, somebody outside in the hallway isn't going to hear it. Right. But how can they um, really um, sort of com um, ensure trust? Uh, even with Snapchat, for example, it was designed to only last for 10 seconds, but now people know that they can just take a, a screenshot and so then the pictures last forever. So it seems that uh, everybody is working against the design or sort right. of in, in um, uh, undoing whatever the designers thought was the right thing to do. Yeah, well, there's, there's two pieces. One, I don't think design is going to guarantee that. It's not going to guarantee also the, that the NSA is not recording everything, et cetera. 
But so two pieces. One is that you can have good enough privacy. So sometimes there, there's just elements that are in places when you're conversing with people you trust. Right now you still don't have a lot of those options of saying, you know, let's easily have a space where we can speak privately or let's have easily move through these different pieces. Let's have a, you know, a phone conversation where, you know, it's just easy to have a private piece. So some of it is in situations where there's trust, the interface still doesn't exist. But the other side is that um, an important design component is that an awful lot of things you see online now give you the impression, not necessarily as deceptively as Snapchat, but don't give you the impression of like how big your audience is, or they give you very little sense of the permanence of what you're saying. So one of the other reasons I think a lot of these visualizations are very useful is that they give you a visceral sense that what you're saying now is being said on top of a history of other things, that that history is being recorded. So it's a lot of the design problem isn't necessarily trying to give you the illusion of privacy where there is none, but to show you the reality of publicness where that is the de facto case. I, I wanted to you know, dispute one statement and then ask a different, okay. an unrelated question. Uh, the, the, you, you mentioned that pseudonymity seems to be dying out, but the one place where it seems to reign supreme is one of the most popular places on the whole internet, which is Reddit. Mm -hmm. and I don't know how much you've, you've looked at that. Yeah. Um, but the question I wanted to ask was, uh, did you study Second Life at all? I'm curious because that, seemed, that was a big flash in the pan a few years ago. It seemed to be an attempt to address some of the issues you brought up near the beginning of your talk, but uh -huh. you don't hear much about it anymore. Um. Yeah, I think, I think we're in for like a new second life because it seems about every seven years there's a new technology that comes out and says we have like these really cool avatars and they're going to be in a space together and, you know, it's really exciting and about 1% of the population is very excited by it. Our original work with chat circles was in response to the palace which was about 70, which was a 2D graphical chat space with little avatars everywhere. And second line, we've done other pieces that were in response to it. I have, um, so I am not a big fan of that type of graphical chat space because I think they, again, tend to be, we try to reproduce the feeling of being face-to-face -face without, um, without pushing that boundary of going beyond being there. You know, if any of you use Second Life, you'd see, like, they'd say, okay, someone's going to give a lecture in Second Life. And... You'd have a lecture hall in there that looked exactly like this. We actually have, I have, my students and I had a paper, something about like, why are there chairs in Second Life? I mean, like, <laughs> avatars don't get tired. There's no reason for them to sit down. But there's like all these chairs. They were desks. It was like, they would have like, and people love the detail. They'd have like the little, you know that little styrofoam things of coffee? And you just look at it. You could taste how burnt the coffee would taste, were it not virtual coffee. And I, I just... Yeah, so a lot of our work was actually just in response to it because, but what you, they didn't do, and it was very, very hard to do, and we tried to do in a space like that, you couldn't do things like think about what exper experientially would you like to do differently. What, what should a lecture be if it's in a virtual space? Like, how do you want to think about how those questions line up? How do you think about, how do you want to think about being able to move people around the space by how they're reacting to what's being said. There's all kinds of really fascinating things that are very hard to do because 
we're human and we kind of need chairs. We have like bodies that weigh over 100 pounds that you don't have in a space like that. And it didn't ever, it made it incredibly hard to try and do anything experimental. So yes. No. Yeah. Um, so, so, so I was wondering, like, um, what the role, like, with, with a lot of this is skeuomorphism, and mm -hmm. you had you had talked about um, the the use of metaphor to portray information, but uh, I think that a lot of times that holds much of design back, like, yeah. su such as Second Life, and um, I mean, I know is this Snapchat, for for instance, with its latest update with its UI, like it completely. Um, it's completely different than any other sort of like transactional messaging system, whether it be um, SMS or email or anything like that. And I was just kind of wondering, how do you? Is it just an art to to kind of come up with these ideas that are that break the metaphors because we don't need any of those constraints uh, in the in the digital world that we had in the physical world? Yeah, I, I, well, that's thank you because that's. Um, the whole first part of the book actually deals with that question. There's a whole chapter on metaphor. And I mean, the question around skeuomorphism is, you know, when do you have interfaces? You know, if you have a date book in your interface, should it look like it has a leather cover on it? <laughs> you know, there's a lot of Apple design is, is based on that type of really sort of reproducing the feel of physical spaces. And so a lot of what I talk about there is how you use metaphor and legibility. Because if you have... If um, there's a very interesting book called Metaphors We Live By by George Lakoff and Richard Robert Johnson, Richard Johnson, um, where they argue that we understand the entire world around us through the use of metaphor. Um, that you know, for instance, we build things on metaphor, and build is a physical metaphor that we actually have no ability to think in pure abstraction, but that you know everything about our understanding of abstract space. We think of things being as above others or below or in front or behind, and we build everything in our understanding is built from there. When you look at an interface, you certainly need to start putting data, which is formless and shapeless, into some kind of meta metaphor, but you want to understand how to use that. And the problem, as you were saying, is that if your metaphors are too heavy-handed, they really limit what you can do. So for instance, going back to email, you know, most email systems, you put your email in little files, and sometimes you put those files into folders. But I, I, and in fact, there are many studies of like how long it takes people to file their email, because it turns out that usually there's like three different places it can go, and that we spend an enormous amount of time trying to decide, well, like, does this go under the date, or does it go under the name of the friend I was having lunch, but we talked about this project that I'm working... You know, you spend a lot, really stupid amount of time trying to do that where there's really no need for it whatsoever because it's a piece of email. If it had labels instead of, of folders, and you know, they were not like physical labels, but they were like them enough so you could understand them, but that they could be used in different ways. You, you could have them be labels, but then you could sort with them. You wouldn't have these problems. It's a much looser interface. So part of the, a lot of the real art of design is understanding how to use metaphors to know, A, when you can do something more abstract and still be legible to people, and then also how you can 
break, you know, how you can bend them without breaking them. So for instance, you know, going back to the label metaphor, it's a very simple piece, but if you label things, we understand that in the physical world you can label something with 20 different labels. So okay, so that's easy. But the difference is the computational thing that you can do with labels is you can search on them. And you can search on them saying, I want this and this, but not this, which at the press of a button, which you can't easily do with physical labels. But yet that ability to search on it expands their ability, but it doesn't break the metaphor. And so I think a tremendous amount of thinking of new design is really understanding that art of how to use metaphor. I, this is more on the political, sure. legal aspects of it, but I saw it was an image of Facebook users around the world, and there's this big blank spot where China, China was. And I thought that was a pretty profound image, for, and I wondered whether the implications for your work from the shifting underpinnings of, of you know, uh, internet freedom or this balkanization, or I don't know, whatever way it's going, whether that breakdown and connections, how, you know, if there's a role for designers or how that would change, you know, your viewpoint. Um, yes, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, I think a more related piece of that for me is, is understanding, for instance, things like the use of, of language. How, how does it change when you're using things, when we're, for instance, trying to look at something purely on a text basis? Are there ways that using images and visualizations can help people bridge different language problems? Or are there ways in which you need to, as a designer, be able to understand the differences between how language is used in one place and, and another so that your images are not misunderstood? You know, I, my reason, the reason I answered yes is your, your question, it's an enormous question. You know, to, I mean, almost anything that you do with an interface has implications where people come from different cultures or different backgrounds and how you can change what's shareable and what isn't. I think, you know, the key piece for my work is probably to try to always be cognizant of your own um, cultural filter. You know, if you go back to the caricature work that I was talking about, part of the issue is when you think about caricature, one of the things that makes any one caricature different than another, and there's been very interesting political work about this, is remember there was the, the subject and the norm and the caricature. But your caricature is going to look really, really different if your norm is different. And so um, one of the things I ended up not using in the book, because I decided it was a long, politically charged argument and it would probably be better to hold it somewhere else, we're looking at caricatures of President Obama from um, black publications and white publications because if you caricature him against a black norm, he's going to look very white. If you caricature him against a white norm, he looks very black. And so depending on what norm you use when you're trying to say what's salient or different or special about this person, you get completely different answers and results about what is important. I was thinking about when you were talking about the visualization of uh, behavior in a group, mm -hmm. in, in a room or in a conference call, and I was thinking if you could do something like this in a process, for example, of negotiations, mm -hmm. and you can actually give people visualization of how they really behave, mm -hmm. which they don't know because they are into the right. content and not into the 
how many times they say no. It looks to me like something that, you know, when you get stuck mm -hmm. and you actually understand what's going on. So, of course, there are observers that often do it intuitively right. or just by observing. But if you can actually do it in a visualization, that could be very right. telling. Yes, and actually the Kari Karahalios, whose work that was, I think has done some pieces in that direction. And there are, there are, there is some work with people trying to understand how you can represent those different levels of, you know, who's saying no, who's interrupting, you know, how are people speaking differently that is very different, difficult for people to notice themselves. Uh, hopefully this isn't backtracking too much, but um, a couple of questions ago you were talking about getting away from the physical idea of interfaces and you bring up this, does my notebook or contact app look like some leather outbound book? And that was something that really only disappeared in like the last release of, of OS, of iOS. Have you over the years of your research and your exposure to that sort of interface design, do you have any idea of like roughly how long it takes for us to stop pegging our interfaces to actual physical things? Um, I don't, you know, I don't know. And I think, you know, again, um, it some of it's a very much about style. And, you know, Apple does things very, very beautifully. And so they made, I think, was sort of a fading tendency to do that, again, very popular. So, you know, it depends, and it depends on, you know, being able to look at big trends like that is hard because there's people who come online who've never been online before. It's, you know, what do people understand? What do people pick up easily? So it's hard to say, you know, this is the timeline for needing a very simple metaphor. So. Anyone else that, I'm, that I've missed and been remiss in finding? But we can continue this. Yeah, well, I, so here's what I want to propose. That was, that was great. I was, I, I'm sorry if I missed anyone because I was so transfixed. Um, I want to, um, before we thank Judith, but I, I want to just invite everyone to come right around the corner there to the pub and have a celebratory drink. Um, but first, to remind you to consider buying one of those great books. Um, and then most importantly, to join me in thanking Judith for a super thoughtful, provocative.